Why are we endlessly fascinated with spies? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 4, Episode 8 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. This is where we talk about writing, spies, and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage and occasional mystery author, P.A. Duncan. I decided to give AI a try. I asked my AI program to give me an outline for a podcast or blog post about why People are fascinated with espionage. Today's podcast is based on that generated outline. Now, to be straight about this, the AI only generated the outline. I wrote the words. However, I found this was a good process in stimulating creativity. So thank you, AI, for your help. But I'm still going to do my own writing. Everybody likes spies. Well, not when you're the person, country, business being spied upon, of course. Then you hate them, declare them enemies, seek to thwart them, put them in jail. Perhaps like isn't the correct word. It's more like fascinated. People who aren't part of an intelligence community are endlessly fascinated by spies. I know, I'm one of them. Fascinated, that is, not spy. I've described before how the television shows and movies of the 1960s triggered my fascination with espionage. The Man from U.N.C.L.E., The Avengers, the original ones, I Spy, Mission Impossible, Secret Agent, Bond movies and books, Matt Helm movies, movies based on Jean Le Carré books, the Flint movies, In Like Flint, and so forth. Google Spy Movies 1960s, and you'll get a treasure trove of movie possibilities. I was very tempted to start watching, but I had writing to do. But what exactly about those TV shows, movies, and books hooked us on espionage? Human beings have an innate need to feel safe, but we also, on occasion, crave adventure, excitement, something to detract from the tedium of our everyday lives. Walter Mitty stories are a prime example of that craving and what can happen in your imagination. There's nothing quite like getting the old adrenaline moving to make a person feel like they could take on anything. There's an old adage in aviation. Flying is hours and hours of utter boredom, punctuated by moments of sheer terror. I can attest to that. The same could be said of espionage. You spend most of your time digesting information behind a desk 
perhaps in a cubicle in a typically dull government agency. Then come those moments. You're working on convincing an official in a foreign government or military or intelligence organization to spy for you. You've almost turned him or her or them, and boom, here comes the secret police. Run or bluff your way out of it. Fight or flight. That tedious job has now become an exciting adventure. Of course, if this is a Bond movie, there's a big car chase, a beautiful woman who is either someone you have to protect or your enemy or both. There's martinis shaken not stirred in an exotic locale, and there are clever gadgets that defy the laws of physics to save the day. That's fantasy, not reality, but the reality can be exciting too. A foot chase through the streets of a city you've had to become more familiar with than a native. Using common, everyday places to elude your pursuers. Figuring out a disguise on the run. At every turn, outwitting your opponents using your brain, not a gun or a gadget. Indeed, many intelligence officers operate in countries where only the local police, secret or otherwise, can carry a gun. That'll stimulate the adrenaline rush, too. I'll admit the fantasy part, the car chases, the interesting venues, the cocktails, the attractive others, is likely what appeals to most of us about our concept of what espionage is. I know it makes for exciting stuff on the movie screen. But too bad that's not how it works. But one can use one's imagination and put yourself right in the middle of it. Another attraction of espionage is seeing the world in a different way, of being wary of every contact, of everyone around you, who's a friend, who is an enemy. Is the old man sweeping a sidewalk in Moscow merely an old man sweeping a sidewalk or the secret police watching you? Then there's turning someone into a spy, persisting with your persuasive techniques to convince someone to betray their country. Intelligence officers operate in a world of deception, manipulation, and lies, and they can get away with a lot. That's intriguing and exciting to those of us who don't do that on a regular basis. I mean, who doesn't want to bend someone to your will? And all you can do is hope you're out of the country before your spy is uncovered. Yet espionage is far from black and white, good and evil. There are variants across those spectra. An intelligence officer convinces a citizen of another country to steal that country's secrets. On the surface, you'd say, that's bad. But if that secret prevents a war or helps the right country to win that war, that's good. Your enemy in espionage often isn't as well-defined as in a Bond movie, where the bad guy is a power-drunk madman intent on conquering the world. In reality, it could be a 
low-level scientist who's been ordered to weaponize a virus, or an engineering student working on a better weapons delivery system. This is why I'm such a fan of Le Carre. In his espionage novels, you aren't the audience detached from what's happening in the story, watching it from afar. You're experiencing it through the eyes of the spy. That's what any writer hopes for, that the reader climbs right into the story and lives it. This is how the reader knows the secrets of the story before they ever get to that part of the book, because they are, in a sense, experiencing the exciting adventure. And this is the stuff that fuels a reader's imagination. As a teen, watching episodes of The Man from UNCLE, I was right there alongside Napoleon Solo and Ilya Kuryakin, and the result was then really bad fan fiction, and now my real spies, real lives espionage fiction. In the reality of espionage, roles reverse all the time. We have no clearer example of this than the Cold War. In World War II, the Soviet Union was our ally. After their army finally got its act together, the Soviet Union was key to the victory over the Nazis. Yet it didn't take long after peace for the Soviet Union to become the Red Scare and our enemy. In a way, the Cold War was the golden age of espionage. Two clear-cut enemies, that isn't always the case, each trying to outdo the other in their approach to espionage. Obviously, it was a time period rife with intrigue, and that adventure and excitement I've mentioned. Look at all the books written, the movies and TV shows made with the Cold War as a backdrop. Then along came Mikhail Gorbachev, and suddenly the Soviet Union was more of an ally in halting nuclear weapons proliferation and in responding to potential danger from other nations and political groups. In the 1915 Guy Ritchie movie, The Man from UNCLE, though it takes place in the Cold War, there's the premise of the CIA and the KGB working together to stop the plans of neo-Nazis with a nuclear bomb. Did that role reversal ever happen in reality? Who knows? One thing is for sure, though. Throughout the history of espionage, friends and enemies have swapped roles many times. And in that is adventure and excitement and a little fear. It is one thing, however, to watch a spy movie or read a spy book with the knowledge that it's fiction and that you're observing a fictional character. When espionage happens to you, when you realize you're being spied upon, it's not so exciting or adventurous or fun anymore. I lived through the 1960s and 1970s when the U.S. government used the CIA and the FBI to spy inside the country on anti-war groups, civil rights groups, equal rights groups for women and gays, and so on. 
That was a shocking realization to a lot of people in the U.S. and produced first disbelief and then an abiding anger. In the U.S., we could accept our country spying on the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union and the Chinese and the Cubans. They were the enemy. But when we realized our government thought some of us as an enemy needing to be spied upon, it wasn't intriguing, it wasn't a good adventure, and it wasn't exciting. It was shattering. As a former federal government employee, I was often surprised at the distrust expressed for the government. When I would say I would help someone, there was disbelief and disdain. So I always made sure I got that person the help they needed. I believe now that that betrayal of trust had its origins in our government spying on its own citizen, which still does, by the way, and did before the 60s and 70s. However, I would rather prefer now that if that internal espionage has to occur, turn it on the proliferation of domestic terrorists here in the country and not on what books are on school shelves. As intriguing and fascinating as espionage is in fiction, in reality, it's disturbing and distressing to the personal and national psyche. So, why are we still fascinated with espionage? Simply put, for outside observers, it looks like fun. It's an escape. Espionage is a vocation we can imagine ourselves doing with a gun in one hand, a martini in the other while leaning against a fast car, and having a beautiful woman or man looking at us adoringly. We all need a little fantasy in our lives, so why not choose one where justice, sometimes, prevails, and the bad guys are rolled up by the authorities? Remember, though, the good guy or the bad guy all depends on perspective. And now it's commercial time. One of my earliest collections of spy stories, Spy Flash, which contains espionage flash fiction, is on sale this month for only 99 cents. Today's the 23rd, so you have until February 28th to score that deal. I'll put the buy link in the description for this episode. And of course, the special price pre-order of my first mystery novel, Supreme Madness of the Carnival Season, is still on. We have less than a month to go, 22 days precisely for the launch, so you have 21 days left to reserve your ebook copy for only $1.99. Again, that link will be in the description for this episode. And finally, coming in April will be the reader magnet for book three in the series Meeting the Enemy, Prologue to Treachery. So stay tuned for the deets. And commercial over. All right, let's read some from that upcoming mystery novel, Supreme Madness of the Carnival Season. 
This reading is from part three, titled Horrible Sanity. And we're now back in 2014, right after our protagonist, Marilyn Shuck, and her husband, Hunter Russell, have found the body, well, the skeletal remains, of a baby behind the wall of a room in their historic house. They've had their first interview with the Virginia State Trooper assigned to the case, and it didn't go well when his line of questioning made Marilyn and Hunter feel like suspects. Supreme Madness of the Carnival Season, Chapter 10 When Virginia State Trooper Archie Pember re-entered the room he supposed was the crime scene, if a crime had happened here, he saw the coroner squatting by the pitiful tumble of bones. He watched as she used surgical scissors to clip a portion of the cloth, what he assumed had been a baby blanket. Someone had planned for this baby if she had wrapped it in a blanket. He recalled a case from a few years back, a teenager too afraid to tell her Bible-thumping parents she was pregnant. She had given birth in a Walmart bathroom stall and left the naked, squalling infant and the afterbirth in a trash can. That one, at least, survived. The coroner dropped the snippet of cloth in an evidence bag, sealed it, and wrote something on it. Hey, Doc, Pember said. She looked over her shoulder and stood up to meet him. Hey, Archie, she said, her voice low. Sounds like the homeowners aren't too happy with you. Oh, the husband, mostly. Can you tell me anything? Well, I'd suspect them if they were in their 80s. What do you mean? Oh, that little body's been there a long time, Archie. Maybe 60, 70 years, I'd say, from the time the house was built. She pointed to the board on the floor. No staining, no decomp fluids. What's that mean? Pember asked. Some of the bones have mummified flesh attached, which is beyond unusual for infant bones. The conditions would have to have been just right, and the good construction from that era probably formed a fairly airtight seal. Speaking of which, I need to get those bones hermetically sealed pretty quick. They're well-preserved right now, but, but prolonged exposure to the air could make them deteriorate pretty fast. If I can keep that from happening, who knows? I might be able to get DNA from the tissue. He nodded, then asked, facial reconstruction? I'd say this was a newborn, so facial reconstruction wouldn't be helpful. I can tell you the skull's shape indicates a vaginal delivery. Caesareans were available in the 1940s, but rare compared to today. You're sure it's been here that long? This is no fresh body. I think it's been here decades which means finding whoever put it here is unlikely. Well, there's no statute of limitations on murder. Arch, I don't even know if it is murder. This could have been a stillborn, maybe to a teenager, maybe to a woman whose husband was overseas in World War II. I think that's the time frame. The baby blanket looks like chenille, and that was popular back then. She smiled at him. Care to guess how I know that? He returned the smile. Your mother's antique store on Main Street, he replied. And while you keep me here, John, those little bones are starting to disintegrate. Pember looked at them. They didn't look any different from the first time he'd laid eyes on them, but the doc was the expert. 
Sorry, Doc. Go ahead and do what you have to do. I'll have some preliminary conclusions for you tomorrow. Pember stepped back into the entrance hallway and saw one of his troopers coming down the stairs. Pember motioned him to the kitchen at the rear of the house and out of the occupant's hearing. When they were huddled there, he asked, See anything unusual? Nope. The hamper in the master bath had the lid off, so I poked around in there. No bloody clothes or sheets, said the younger trooper. Well, Doc thinks the body's been here maybe since World War II or something. What? Would a baby's body still be around that long? She seems to think so. She said she may have some findings tomorrow. The guy, Hunter Russell, is an asshole. The lady seems nice. She's that author, Marilyn Hendricks. Wow. Who knew Ewington had celebrities, huh? Yeah, that seems to be the husband's hang-up. What do you mean? That his wife is the celebrity. Oh, what's she like? And can I tell my mom? Come on, you know better than that. But like I said, she seems nice. She was rattled by the discovery. Had a miscarriage some years back herself. Hell, boss, it rattled me. And I don't even have kids. You finish questioning them, Sarge? Probably. But the asshole insisted on calling his lawyer buddy, so I'm jerking him around a little longer. I think I saw Fern Brahman from the Chronicle outside. Go tell her I'll fill her in when I'm done here, but don't answer any questions. Yes, sir. And use your in-car computer to look up Ms. Shuck's, uh, Hendrix's publisher. You might want to do a whatchamacallit search on the two of them, Hunter Russell and Marilyn Shuck, and her pen name, Marilyn Hendricks. You mean a Google search, the trooper said with a grin. He got Pember's no-nonsense glare and added, Yes, sir. All right, that's enough for today. Don't forget the sale for the Spy Flash ebook and the pre-order of Supreme Madness of the Carnival Season. Both links will be in the episode description. I'm off to a writing retreat this weekend. Three days of focused writing and editing in a place where cell service is sketchy. For me, I'm eager for a change of venue. As much as I love my writing cave in my house, it's always good to escape the housework and leave some dishes in the sink. But don't worry, even though it's a retreat, I'll still keep an eye out for spies. Tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of a sovereign nation, Ukraine. The Ukrainian army and the Ukrainian people have shown remarkable strength and bravery. They have shown what love of country should be in facing down and pushing back against the self-declared best army in the world. Keep the Ukrainian soldiers, men and women, and the population they're defending so courageously in mind. Slava, Ukraini. The proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2023, all rights reserved. Join us next week for a brand new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast.